Welcome to Green and Gold Forever. I'm Eric Drews, broadcasting from Appleton, Wisconsin, and we'll be joined shortly here by Matt McLean in Altoona. And it feels like it was last season that the Packers had their preseason opener at Foxborough against the defending world champion New England Patriots, and they beat them 22-11. to I'm not quite sure that that was not a Green Bay Bullfrog score, but we'll talk about that and some other things. Matt, uh, it's been a while uh, just due to scheduling, and it's preseason for us too, so uh, we weren't able to uh, do the podcast at our, our normal uh, time. But what were some of the great, the larger things that stuck out to you, uh, if you can remember that far back? <laughs> well, I think um, both of the things that we kind of thought about for, you know, things we'd want to look for, for, you know, some depth in the secondary, hopefully, and along the defensive front, and I thought that they looked really, really good in that game. There was a lot of young guys that stepped up and played well, so I think some of the areas of main concern uh, were it's just the first preseason game, so they're not addressed, but at least had some bright spots. Yeah, I would agree. Um, many of the things that we were looking at, they didn't look bad. And in, in fact, in the case of, uh, we'll just go right into it, in the case of like Quentin Rollins, I thought Rollins he looked awesome. Yeah. He, would you have known that he had been a pro football player for two weeks? No, I, that was insane. And granted, I, I'll give him credit. He was everywhere making all these plays, but I think he was lined up against the guy in the majority of the game that maybe had the worst preseason game I've ever seen. And Josh <laughs> Boyce, I think is his name, that yeah. receiver uh, for the Patriots. So he was just absolutely awful. So I think that helps. But I mean, he was just dominant in that he was everywhere, knocking down balls, making tackles. That was great to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And it'll be, uh, I don't know about tomorrow, uh, but Demarius Randall's got to be getting into the fold pretty soon here. We'll see how he can do. Yep. And uh, shoot, his, his name's escaping my uh, mind right now, but the Miami cornerback. Um, oh, yeah, I can't think of it off the top of my head either. The, the undrafted guy? Yeah, it's some of the G, I think. <laughs> Sorry. But, but <laughs> yeah. Go green and gold podcast. Yeah, well. You know he's undrafted. You know he's got to he's got to earn the right for us yeah, to remember still his name. Yeah, used to these names here too. Yeah, well uh, he's he's doing well as uh, well. So it looks like they're going to have a lot of options in the secondary. And again, it's very early in the process, but it looks like there's got to be somebody who, at the very least, can be as good as Devon House was. Maybe we're not talking for sure. Yeah, we're we're not talking Tremont Williams yet, but all we need to do is plug those holes, and I think this defense could be okay. Yeah, definitely. And Ryan, the the rookie linebacker, too, played pretty well. And mm-hmm. a couple, you know, a couple of young guys here and there that you know just get some depth from these guys. Like you said, we don't need them to maybe fill some of these starters we lost, namely just Tremont Williams. But if they can come in and you know, sub guys out and be solid, I think that's huge. Yeah, and one of the things we talked about last week was the early part of the season where they're going to be shorthanded along the defensive line. I mean, that's a question mark, anyways. But early in the season, they're going to have no Dayton Jones. I don't know if Detroit, uh, Latroy Guyon's been given his suspension yet, but you've got to imagine he's not going to be there probably the first month of the season at least. Right. Yep. And then, again, I don't know why he didn't play that much last year. I know there's a difference in competition between the preseason and the regular season, but J. Ron Elliott looks like Reggie White during the preseason. Yeah. <laughs> the guy's unstoppable. He's everywhere. He's terrorizing the backfield, and when he's not making the play, he's wreaking havoc so that his teammates can benefit. And that's the second preseason in a row. And I, I don't think it's out of line to start putting more weight onto what you're seeing in those preseason games because he did it last year too. He led the whole right. NFL in sacks in the preseason. Yeah, I mean, he looks great again, and I, I think you're right. I mean, they have to know it's not quite as meaningful in the preseason, but nobody else is doing what he's doing either. Exactly. So, and he just kind of disappeared during the regular season last year and didn't get the playing time, even though we were kind of thin and not that great along the line last year either. 
So it, it would be really nice to see him at least get some more opportunities. You know, the, the coaches know better than we do with what they're seeing, and maybe they're, you know, concerned about something, part of his game that might be a liability or something. Um, but it would be really, really nice to see him get some plays in week one. Yeah, absolutely. And I think he's going to almost have to get the chance to play in week one just uh, by the nature of, mm-hmm. you know, how shorthanded they're going to be. Ladarius Gunter is who we were talking about. The oh, Miami yes, runner. Gunter. Yep, yeah. Okay. Yeah, he, he played really well, too. I think they were talking about how he didn't have much speed, mm-hmm. um, but he was a good corner otherwise, and he made a big play, obviously, with the pick. Yeah, I, I thought he looked really good. So those are some great things that are happening. Um, some of the bad that I wanted to point out, and the the thing that was most glaring to me, people talked about the red zone offense. Believe it or not, I'm not really that worried about that. Uh, they moved the ball very, very well. Brian, or uh, I'm sorry, David Bakhtiari got whooped quite a bit in that first uh, part of the of the game uh, and it turns out he was injured so maybe that's why uh, but yeah. well he's not playing tomorrow is one of the things that uh, is making me nervous about tomorrow as we'll uh, talk about that later but they, I'm having flashbacks of do you remember when Greg Lloyd destroyed Brett Favre in the 95 preseason at Three Rivers and knocked him out oh, of the I game? I can't say that I do. I just remember Favre like flying through the air and hitting the turf, and I, he ended up being okay. But it was it was a scary moment, and mm-hmm. I'm worried about that a little bit tomorrow with Rodgers if Bakhtiari's not playing. Right. Um, but I thought the first team O line kind of struggled a little bit. The red zone offense obviously was a was a problem. They had three really good drives and weren't able to get a touchdown in either of them, and in fact only got three points. But they were uh, playing a little bit recklessly, I think, uh, trying to. Uh, or I think McCarthy even joked, he's like, I don't think I'll have a regular season game where I go for it on six fourth downs. Right. Yeah, it, it is concerning to see the red zone problems again, just because that was their only issue last year for this offense was they couldn't seem to convert into into seven a lot of times. But again, it's a new play caller, first preseason game, so although it's a red flag because it's the same problem you had last year, I'm, I'm not going to get too concerned about it yet. It's it's a little scary to see, but hopefully they can kind of work out these kinks. I'm sure they'll do some different things. They're smart guys. I think they can get it fixed and figured out here. So mm-hmm. it's uh, a little scary, but I'm not going to you know, say it's going to be the exact same as last year just yet. At the very least, last year the red zone offense was a problem, but everything else was great. The same held true on Thursday, so clearly yep. the new play caller is not going to be an issue. They're going to be the right. same offense. It's going to be pretty much the same thing, yeah. Yeah, and having said that, my number one thing that I put on the bad list uh, of the little shorthand notes I made for the game Mike McCarthy looked miserable on the sidelines during that game. <laughs> Didn't know what to do. Yeah, and he even said at halftime he was bored, and I think he was joking, and uh, he elaborated that he gets to enjoy the game more now. But when they showed him when the first-team offense was out there running no huddle in the first part of the game, the first game of the the actual uh, first chance to play another opponent in the preseason, he looked like he hated life. It's got to be a helpless feeling. I mean, you've been doing it for so long, and you've had the, your hands on the throttle of the offense deciding exactly what happens, and then now you're watching the exact same team do it without you. <laughs> it, it's got to be frustrating. I mean, as much as he probably knows it's best for the team for him to give that up, it can't be easy to sit there and watch the offense run without he, – he'll still have input, obviously, but without being the one you know, with your finger on the trigger calling the plays. Yeah, and he – Going back to what? Like, I think even in New Orleans he was calling plays. So this will be like his first year in 15 that he hasn't been calling the plays? That's going to be weird. Yeah. But I'm sure he'll work it through, and uh, it'll it'll be tough during the uh, uh, latter part of the, the preseason here. But hopefully, uh, I don't know. I mean, he'll just make the adjustment, and he'll get used to it. And 
I always wondered when he was calling the plays, what was it like for the offensive coordinator on the team? Yeah, that's true. I mean, what did they, what did they just do? Um, I I know we mentioned this back in the spring, but I had forgotten that Edgar Bennett actually has the title of offensive coordinator now. Mm-hmm. It's uh, everybody kind of got promoted without anybody getting moved. It, it was they just kind of changed the titles to make everything sound a little bit more impressive. And um, reading some articles, it it sounds like Mike McCarthy did that on purpose to try to get these guys out of Green Bay, basically saying Edgar Bennett and. Tom Clements and these guys, they're ready to be viable head coaching candidates, and so what do I have to do to get them interviews? Sure. And so that's the reason why he did it, which is kind of cool. Yeah, makes sense. Absolutely. Um, Scott Tolzien looked legit. Like, I don't, I don't think he's going to be a, uh, a viable starter necessarily in the, in the near future, or maybe even ever, but he looked really, really good, as good as I've ever seen him look, and certainly better than Matt Flynn's ever looked. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he looked really good. He's just got that zip on the ball, and he's he's accurate. It's it's kind of a you wonder why nobody's maybe given him a shot after sort of the glimpses you saw from him, you know, the last couple of years. Just he looks like he could be really, really good. Mm-hmm. So, like you said, I don't think he's going to be, you know, probably a great starting quarterback ever. But I'll, I'll take him as a backup. I think he could come in and do some good things. Yeah, I think the the knock on him is. Even guys who didn't look that good in college anymore, and, and that's something I want to talk about later, but like Winston and Mariota, they didn't look that much bigger than their peers, and they just look huge compared to guys like Tolzien. Right. And, you know, that you have the rarity every once in a while in Russell Wilson and Drew Brees, but for the most part, you know, Aaron Rodgers, when he came in the league, six foot two was about standard. Now he's one of the shorter starting quarterbacks. It seems like all of these new guys are six foot four, six foot five, and, you know, I, I don't know if anybody's going to want to give a chance to Scott Tolzien, who's what, probably 6'1", 6'2", and yeah. has a low delivery. So I, I don't know, maybe it's just something weird like that. But he, if he produces, he produces, I guess. I don't know what the issue would yeah. be. Yeah, right. I thought uh, the whole team really looked good. And it's the first preseason game, but I didn't lose any excitement for this season, even with some of the hiccups that they had in the red zone this team, for one night in early August, looked every bit as good as advertised, I thought. Sure. Yeah, I, I guess I was frustrated by, you know, some of the the drives, the way they ended at first, especially when the starters were playing. That kind of brought me down a little bit. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I haven't dampered my excitement for this season. I, I just really hope they can turn those things around. It's, you know, if you just think if their red zone offense had been a little bit better last year, they're probably Super Bowl champs because you don't mm-hmm. lose to Seattle then. Um, I think so part I, of it, though, is in the regular season, they'd be much more willing to let Lacey bang it in the middle there. I, I think yeah, they... That, that's true. They treat him with kid gloves even more than Aaron Rodgers in the preseason, and I, I think rightfully Which so. they should, yeah. So I think in the regular season... But but then again, that was one of our biggest criticisms last year, but they seemed unwilling to do that. But it seemed towards the end of the year when they were playing Detroit and Dallas, a lot of them short yardage and goal line situations, they just let Lacey make a hole. Yeah, hopefully that's the case. So, yeah, I, I guess, yeah, it, I don't know. We'll see what happens in the following weeks here, but it's hard to really get a, a really good read until week one because they're not even calling what they're going to call in the regular season yet at this point. Even yeah. with the new play caller trying to get used to it, they're holding back on most of their calls. Yeah, Aaron Rodgers made it sound like they only have like a sixth of the playbook even on the table right. in, in preseason games. So. Yeah, I, I mean, basically the preseason, uh, I know I talk about the preseason and value the preseason probably more than anybody, 
but it's about talent evaluation, and I think that shows itself on the scoreboard. And the fact that your backups were able to come in there when New England's backups couldn't do anything, couldn't move the ball, and you had four quarterbacks that had drives that ended in New England territory. So I think that's a very good sign for the overall talent level of this team. And uh, uh, they were able to win, and after they fell behind right before halftime and then basically dominated the second half, and granted, some of those guys on both sides are not going to be playing in the NFL, but this team has been said that they have a ton of depth, and uh, those guys are going to be needed, as we've seen in several uh, of the last Packer seasons. Right, and I think you made a good point there. I think it's mostly about talent, eval- talent evaluation, not much at all about the strategy you're going to run. Correct. So it, it, you're basically just lining up you know, your, your guys and your backup guys against their guys and their backup guys, and not much you know, in terms of creativity and play calling. So really the better team just kind of, you know, wins in the majority of the cases because you're just lining up and playing football. Yeah, tackle the guy in front of you, outrun the guy you're matched up against, throw the ball to the open guy. I mean, it's it's as simple as football gets, but that's when you see who's got what it takes and who doesn't. Yep. So let's talk about that 22-11 to 11 score. As a football purist that I, I guess I would consider myself, it was driving me nuts to see 9-8 to eight as a score. Yeah, that's when it was at its worst. 22-11 at least ended up being a little bit more respectable, but 9-8 <laughs> was real weird. Yeah, and I looked it up. Apparently there's been 12 two-point conversions attempted so far this season, a clip of about .7 a game, which is three times as many that uh, are attempted in a normal regular season. So I think it's probably coaches experimenting and trying to maybe make some of the teams on their schedule nervous this coming year that they're going to go. Point, yep. So I'm I'm not ready to panic yet, but this is going to get weird. I think this year with the uh, with the two point conversion. Well, there will be coaches that'll do it, and I think that's a lot to do with it. You know, you want to as a coach in the preseason show that you're willing to do it because then they have to think about it constantly. The other team, even if you haven't done it all year, you did it. You know. 10% of the time in the preseason, but also for the coaches that are maybe like 20% kind of thinking about starting to run more two-point conversions, they can at least try it out, you know, see what the percentages and the ratios are of how successful this is going to be and if it's worth even thinking about. So why not do it now? It doesn't matter if you try it in scrimmages or practice. That doesn't give you a good read, so do it in these meaningless games as much as you have to. Yeah, and I, I think that's right, and I, I still am worried about the worst-case scenario where teams are going for two all the time, and then you're getting into like the soccer shootout or college overtime type scenario where games are being decided by not real football. I mean, if you have two equal teams and one makes its two-point conversions and the other doesn't, I mean, they're going to win purely from the two-yard line. I mean, you could be equals everywhere else on the field. But week one, somebody like Cleveland or Buffalo or something is going to be down 16 to 17. They're going to go for two. They're going to get stuffed, and then they're going to get destroyed in the media, and then it's going to be business as usual, I think. Right. Yeah, that's that's a good Yeah, earlier in the game, go for it. Then nobody scores again. You're like, well, had you just kicked the extra point, you would have won. Yeah. I mean, we always see that, though, too. You know, it seems like a coach will go for two earlier in the game, maybe even in the third quarter when the, the point chart tells them to, mm-hmm. and it always seems to come back to bite them in the butt. Yeah. So yeah, I, I agree. I don't think there's going to be a whole lot of coaches that do it. Maybe some of the more progressive ones, like a Chip Kelly or something like that, but I don't think it's going to be a widespread phenomenon. Yeah, because... Yeah, yeah, as soon as somebody loses a game because of it, it people are going to get scared again. Yep. Although, what I I can't remember who said it, but 
the kickers, I think, are going to get more fairly evaluated. And, and one of the things, it might have been uh, Vic Ketchman on Packers.com, he said a lot of kickers use the extra point as a confidence builder. So you have a guy like Mason Crosby who sometimes has his struggles. Well, at least you're going out there and you're making four kicks a game, and it's it's routine, you're always going to make it. It sure. can kind of help you remember that you're actually good at this. And if guys are missing field goals and then missing extra points too, I mean, you could have some disastrous kicking seasons just from guys completely losing their confidence. Well, yeah, imagine Mason a couple of years ago had the extra points been back, you know, as far <laughs> as they're going to be now. He could he probably would have been cut midseason. He was close to it anyways. Yeah. But it's a that's a good point. I think it's big for the muscle memory even just to get out and kick the extra point because you can get your form right. You know, even though you're kicking it from the you know the nine or whatever, you, it's still the same form for the most part. It's a longer one, so you kick it the same. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you're right. If somebody's struggling, uh, an extra point is going to be very easily missed. Yeah, so that that'll be really interesting and. Uh, I mean, I, I guess it'll be interesting. So it, it's always fun to have new storylines, but I still, when I was reading the article that uh, told me about the number of two-point conversions that have been attempted, somebody said, well, after further review, even with the new rules, the extra point is still boring. And I just can't stand that sentiment. It makes me so yeah, mad. It's part of the reason why I think I'm becoming a bigger baseball fan is because those old curmudgeons that everybody makes fun of are preserving the game. I mean, if you took out all the parts of baseball that were boring, you'd have a T and, and people would just be hitting off of that. You know, it, if you're getting bored, we, we've said it ad nauseum on this show, but if you're getting bored during the extra points, football is not for you. Yeah, it's the one small break during the whole game of the action. So if you can't hang on for five seconds, yeah, do you have no boring parts of your life? Go see your doctor too. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, when when did we decide that every single moment of your life has to be not boring? I mean, that's part of life—just jumping from the the fun spots through the boring spots to the next fun spot, right? That's right. Yeah, kids these days, what the heck? (laughs) I don't really want to talk about Deflategate or Tom Brady. It, it feels yeah, like, that. yeah, uh, hopefully we'll get some kind of uh, resolution to this soon. It was interesting back in March, and now I'm just exhausted. Uh, I mean, we set our piece on, on an earlier one, but gosh, this has just been real annoying. <laughs> yeah, I, I care like 0% anymore. They could come back and say they raised the suspension to 10 games. I'd be like, whatever, that's fine. Let's just get, get <laughs> Can we just play some games? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Mariota, Marcus Mariota, and Jameis Winston both made their preseason debuts. I don't believe either of them played again uh, since last weekend. So I think they're all either today or tomorrow. Yeah, and so I got to see a little bit of both. Um, I think you at least got to see some of Winston. Did you see Mariota at all? Uh, just the highlights. I didn't watch the actual game. I guess I heard he played pretty well, but uh, nothing, I guess, over the top good. Yeah, the one thing that stood out to me the most with Mariota is he it, he looked like he belonged, uh, and and I'll elaborate on that. Obviously, I hate when you just people with the vague uh, sports talk uh, stuff. But when Mariota was at Oregon, a lot of times he looked small or frail, or I don't know if it was the green jerseys or whatnot. But when he was out there in the Titans uniform, I was expecting him to not look as imposing as he did. And he sure. looked big. He looked like he was Ben Roethlisberger or, or Joe Flacco or something. And so maybe uh, people more knowledgeable than me probably weren't worried about that. But for me to see him behind center in the NFL and he looked like a big NFL quarterback, I felt a lot more confident that he could get the job done physically than I did before. 
Sure, and I'm sure he probably put on some muscle because he did look pretty skinny at Oregon. I agree with that. I don't think it was just the jerseys. I'm sure he's <laughs> probably had to put on some muscle mass this this summer. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I was taking a drink there. Um, it's all right. So I thought he looked okay. He had two really bad turnovers, but the rest he, he looked like he was comfortable in the pocket, which I thought was good. He is going to be an annoying dink and dunk kind of new age quarterback, but I think we knew that if we saw him play at Oregon. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens with him. Jameis Winston, I thought, looked exactly like Jameis Winston did at Florida State, which was reckless and like not 2013 Winston, but 2014 first half of most games Winston, where he looked reckless and slow to react and he looked like he had the arm strength, but I didn't know if he had the decision-making ability or the the um, uh, awareness to actually make his physical skills work, and that's exactly how he looked in the first game. Yeah, I mean, I've been saying it for about a year, and I'm probably going to get proven wrong, but I don't understand at all how this guy was the first overall pick and, and how people think he's going to come in and contribute and be a, a good starter right away. I mean, he's he showed last year against weak competition that he didn't play well and threw a ton of interceptions. Mm-hmm. Got his team in the hole early. He dug them out a lot at the end of games, but if you dig your team in a hole that bad early in the NFL, you're done. Mm-hmm. And then uh, with on top of that, the off-the-field stuff, it just... It just doesn't seem like a good combination for me. And then putting him around a roster, that's not very good either. I just don't see it this year. Yeah, and like 150 miles from home probably can't help either. Yeah, true. Yeah, I mean, he could be good down the road because he's got the physical tools. I just I don't see it early in his career. Yeah, and I just, I think people get hung up on those Brett Favre kind of comparisons. And they said the same thing about guys like Jay Cutler who'd be throwing picks in, in uh, in college and then pulling guys out of it. And... The good ones don't do that. They don't throw 100 picks in college. No, they throw like zero picks in college. I mean, Joel Stave seems like he throws a ton of picks, and I bet you he doesn't have as many interceptions in his whole career as Winston had last season. Yeah. And so, I mean, we'll see what happens, but yeah, I'm with you. I, I still am confused as to why he was the number one overall pick, hands down. That just didn't make any sense at all to me. And, and yeah. Well, yeah, well hey, J.P. Lossman proved us wrong, though, with those that reckless Brett Favre comparison, though, right? That's true. You know, he, he never threw that many interceptions because he could hardly even get the ball. To. Yeah. <laughs> um, How about the new Browns uniforms, by that's, the way? That's Thank actually you. the next thing on my list. What do you nice. think? <laughs> Um, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think I like them as much as the other ones. They're, they're just kind of out there. I don't know if I like the Browns written on the pants like that. Yeah. Maybe they just take some getting used to. I, I wasn't a a hater against the old ones that much. I guess they were playing, but I didn't mind them. They were kind of historic. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. They're they're way different. Some of the striping's kind of weird, and the orange numbers are different. We'll see. It, maybe it'll grow on me. I think they might have looked better with white pants or orange pants even than those brown pants. Yeah, the brown pants are terrible, and that's the only thing I, I disliked about their last uniforms is they were playing with the combinations too often. When they would just wear the Bernie Kosar all-whites. Yeah, those are great. Those are awesome, but they'd always wear those, like, brown pants with no stripe or anything and these ones add like a weird looking stripe i don't know it just looks like a high school team i yeah it does it almost looks like our high school away <laughs> just sub the brown for black and it's almost identical yeah and so i it's okay i like it more than i like tampa's or jacksonville's uniforms yeah. but yeah, that's true. it just looks amateurish i don't know I, maybe I just can't be pleased. They should just keep the same uniforms till the day I die, and that's the only way I'll be happy, I guess. Well, I think there's something to be said about that. I, I think all of the best uniforms in the NFL are these classic-looking ones, and I know some teams aren't blessed with the, the best classic uniforms, but but still, I think they, they look better than trying to 
you know, change them up with something weird. Mm-hmm. I think even like the the weird creamsicle Buccaneers uniforms are a lot better than the new ones they have. Yeah, or, like, a classic Browns one look way better than these new ones. Or you know, I don't know. Like I don't. I'm not even that big of a fan of like the Colts. I would say in terms of classic uniforms, are probably my least favorite. But mm-hmm. it, I just think if you try to change those up too, they probably end up looking stupid like all the other ones. <laughs> well, and that's the thing that's cool about the history of teams like the Colts and the Packers and the Cowboys. You can watch like a hour special, or you can watch the old uh, NFL yearbooks that are talking about the history of the team, and it is so cool to watch the Packers play against a million different colors and still be the same the green same. and gold. And you just kind of get the feel of the history then when they're playing now, because it's the same thing that mm-hmm. Bart Star wore, basically, you know, with just a few small changes. You just kind of get that history still coming through, and it just kind of adds a certain mystique to the team. Whereas you're the Jaguars, and you got eight different colors on your helmets. Not that they have much history anyways, but hey, at mm-hmm. least you had like the Mark Brunel era. That was pretty good. Yeah, those are cool. I like those yeah. those uniforms. I always wondered, I'm sure nobody cared, but I always wondered like a fan of the Broncos all of those years with the orange crush jerseys yeah. and the blue helmets and imagining Elway in those colors standing on the podium winning a championship. So cool. And then yeah, when he finally does, he has different ones. You know what I mean? I'm like, wouldn't you have felt like, you know what, my whole time, the last 20 years I've been fantasizing about those old crush or orange crush uniforms on that stage, and now they finally win, and it's just some modern, boring uniform. It's like not even the same team. Yeah, it's like a whole different team one. That would have been so great. Had they, I would have might have actually cheered for them more had they had those old blue and orange uniforms. Yeah. I, yeah, their new ones aren't that great either, but all their winning history basically is in those ones in terms of Super Bowls. So. Yeah, and that's why it's so baffling that Tampa changed again. I mean, those pewter uniform. the entire good history... Yeah, the only time they were good was the stretch they wore those. They were good almost the whole time they wore them. Yeah, and now they stink again. <laughs> yeah, so um, at least Cleveland tried to stay close to what it used to be, so there's at least that, but... Because they, they kind of wore somewhat similar uniforms in the 80s, didn't they? They didn't have the orange numbers, but they had a, the orange pants, kind of like that with the orange helmets. Or maybe they did have... Were their numbers a different color then, too? Um, I can't I remember. They had one uniform that got kind of close to these with, like, maybe a brown face mask or something. The closest probably would have been... They had one in, in 1984. They like had a Brian Sipe here? Um, well, Brian Sipe had the orange pants when he was okay. there. And But I think they had one year where the numbers looked like they did now, but they ditched it right away and went back to the Jim Brown unis when uh, sure. Schottenheimer got there. Okay, yeah, I thought I remember seeing those at some point. Yeah, the Brian Sipe unis were actually really similar. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, so, I don't know. Well, hopefully they just don't ruin any of the Like, if they start coming next year and say they want to change the Raiders or Kansas City or something like that, then I'm going to start getting yeah, really get out of here. Yeah, get lost. Um, I don't know, before we talk about the greatest teams of all time, since we were talking a little bit about history here, um, we both had our fantasy draft. I actually had another fantasy draft yesterday, which I did, I think, considerably better. Um, I don't know, do, do you want to say anything about fantasy football? I'm still mad at it. I was thinking that um, yesterday, we were having a draft, and every I picked Aaron Rodgers. I had the first overall pick. Um, I picked him over Luck because I just wanted Aaron Rodgers on my team. And the people in the draft were almost... Like making fun, they're like, how could you have, Air- how could you pick Aaron Rodgers? Uh, you wanted a Packer, why didn't you take Eddie Lacy? And I started doing the math. Well, first of all, this is a six-point quarterback touchdown league, so boom, there, there's the decision already. But I wanted to look this up. So in order to have 30 touchdowns in a normal fantasy scoring league, a 30 touchdowns by a quarterback is the same as 20 all-purpose touchdowns by a running back, and. For historical sake, 
Nine quarterbacks last year had 30 touchdowns, and 21 running backs have scored 20 touchdowns in the last 40 years. And the same thing is Aaron Rodgers' season last year, from a fantasy standpoint, was similar in points production as... And and Rodgers last year was really, really good, but it wasn't anything historic from numbers standpoint. Rodgers last year would have scored as much as Marshall Falk did in 2000, when he had like the best season ever, 26 touchdowns. 1500 all-purpose yards and I know I don't really have a overall point to this but in addition to my frustration with fantasy football dominating a lot of what goes on and what is decided by the NFL to incorporate into the game not only is there a fundamental under misunderstanding of football by the hardcore fantasy football people it doesn't even make sense in the terms of their own scope it I'm just fed up with it yeah I, I, and I'm hesitant to even talk about this on here because this has kind of been my strategy for every since <laughs> I, you know the last five years I've been playing fantasy I've won four championships and made it to a couple more and it, especially in my other league it's a lot of more hardcore players too and running backs always went first but that I like I said I ended up making it to three out of four championships and winning a couple and then last year that changed because I was the only one who would draft a quarterback in the first in the first round and then last year that changed and I ended up finishing like seventh or something so it's it's like this preconceived thing that a running back needs to go higher but I to me the differential between a Rodgers and a Luck to the next tier down or you know is so much greater than any difference between a the first and the top 15 running backs even yeah there's just a lot more depth in that, and the points you get from a quarterback or more, especially in a six-point touchdown league. So, you know, it's that's always kind of been my strategy is to go quarterback first, and it's worked really, really well. And every time I've tried to take a running back, I, I took Foster one year, and he got hurt right away, and I always get completely screwed. So, mm-hmm. it's uh, yeah, it's it's I always go quarterback unless there's somebody that you know they're all gone before it gets to me. That's always my strategy. Well, if you think about it, these elite quarterbacks like Rodgers and Luck and Breeze and Brady. They get probably 300 yards and three touchdowns every week. Yeah, it's so consistent. And and for a running back to produce that, even in the the the, the, the scoring scale that kind of diminishes a quarterback's effect, that would be what like 120 all-purpose yards and two or three touchdowns. The best running backs in the league do that like four times a year. Yep. So, but um, I, I definitely think you guys should all go uh, draft yeah, uh, Demarco Murray in first our overall. Fantasy leagues just. Uh disregard that we're usually really terrible at fantasy football so don't listen to us well that holds true for me uh just <laughs> don't don't uh, listen to the part where matt said he won four championships <laughs> okay i don't really have anything else is there anything else uh, that happened uh, so far in the preseason that you wanted to mention uh no not really i guess i i haven't watched a ton of it so far i watched kind of the opening night i've kind of watched here and there some of the games i watched a little bit of the end of the browns bills game the other day but i guess nothing that's really stood on my mind too much i guess calvin benjamin being hurt for the year is the big story that, yeah. that really hurts them it makes me feel better about my falcons division winner pick <laughs> yeah yeah it makes me feel less confident about my panthers division winner pick yeah it, it really sucks i mean i'm sure it's happened for years but um maybe it's just reported more but it feels like we never get to see these teams duke it out at peak levels. It it's, just sucks when you see star players get hurt in the preseason. Yeah, there's always one contender every year that loses such a key part that you know they're just not going to be the same for the rest of the year, and that's the case for Carolina now. I mean, that's their best offensive player, mm-hmm. You know, I would say, in front of Cam Newton even. So yeah. it, it, to lose a guy like that, I mean, sure, you might still be good. You might still make the playoffs, but that team's not going to win a championship. And I didn't think they were going to anyways, mm-hmm. but you lose your best weapon, you're you're in trouble. You're not going to make the push you were going to before. It's 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 okay when you're the Packers and you might have to play a team like that. Yeah. 
but overall, it's it's frustrating to you know to even think about the fans of those teams or the players in the locker room. It's such a crushing blow. Yeah, well, at least it's happening to a team that probably doesn't have a whole lot of loyal fans. But yeah, that's true. But I I still feel bad for those few. The the ones that are sticking in there, they they deserve yeah. some respect. All right, so let's go to something that we've teased for a really long time, and that is the greatest teams in NFL history. And we did a quarterback list our top 10 quarterbacks each last summer and this time around um we're just going to do one list here and it's it's a list i made and then i'm going to let matt so i did all this really hard work for like months and then and matt's going to hear it for the first time and then and then just destroy just it say a couple of quick words on it and we'll be good yeah. and, and that'll sound fun <laughs> so i can never just arbitrarily decide who the best teams of all time are so of course i could not just say these are the 10 teams, and this is why I feel that way. I have to have a statistical base for it, and I'm kind of a stat junkie. I'm not a statistician, but I like to try to um, create some stats and help me clarify things. So the only way that I could do this is I had to decide what stats meant something to me and what stats didn't, and I built a database. I did most of this back in... Uh, I, I work for a college, so I have like a week off right in the middle of the summer. And so I did most of this then. And instead of doing the top 10 teams of all time, I did the top 1,808 teams of all time. I will read them all right. No, I won't. Um, what I did is I took every team since the NFL standardized the schedule uh, in 1936, and I compared their statistics against the average theoretical team from the season in which they played. So that way you're not comparing across eras and trying to reward sure. a team for scoring 500 points in 2011 when everybody was doing it versus a team that was scoring like 400 in the 90s. Like, for example, the Packers score, led the NFL in scoring in 1996 with like 460 points. That would have been 16th last year. So that's why you're trying to compare percentage versus the team in a given era. Um, before I launch into this, um, I won't, uh, I, I won't obviously talk about each and every one of these teams, but I, I try to do as many stats as I could, both efficiency and volume. So you get rewarded and punished for stuff you are really good at or really bad at. I didn't do anything with playoff, uh, victory bonus. I thought it was too small of a sample when you're doing it this way. So like for instance, when, uh, the, the Giants beat the Packers by 17 in 2011, nobody thinks the Giants of 2011 are 17 points better than the 2011 Packers. So sure. I built in a bonus for winning a playoff game, but not for any strength of victory and no regular season strength of schedule. I, I didn't do anything to try to make any sense of that. Again, it would be much too difficult. And also, how do you account for variance in schedule? Uh, the example I used is the, the 1995 Rams. They came to Lambeau Field in week one and kicked the crap out of a really good Green Bay Packer team, and then by the end of the season, they were getting blown out by horrible teams. Sure. So that variance there. Um, so are you ready for me to give you number yep. 1,808? <laughs> The other thing I will say before I start is that the ones we're going to talk about here are only since the merger because the small league NFL is ridiculous. And according to this metric, so I'll tell you this, but don't discount it yet because it gets more normal once we go past the merger. According to this, the best three teams of all time are the early 40s Chicago Bears sure. uh, because they were scoring 100% more points than the average team in the NFL. So... <laughs> They were scoring 300 points a year when the rest of the league was scoring 150 points a year. So okay. that's why. 
All right, everybody take a breath, and now we'll start. So this is post-merger, best teams of all time. Clearly, this is meant to be just kind of a fun thing. This is not the be-all, end-all list of best teams in history. I think it might be. It might be? <laughs> well, we'll see. Um, and actually, for selfish reasons, we're just going to we'll, we'll plow through them as fast as we can, but we're going to start with number 15 because I really wanted to get this team on here. So number 15. Oh, uh, I forgot. Here's one last thing. The number that was produced is how much better from a percentage point this team is than the average team from the year they played in. Got it. So this team, number 15, is the 1996 Green Bay Packers. Nice. So they are about, they're 25.78% better than the average team of 1996. So if, Best team in 1996 was expecting to score 21 points. The 96 Packers were scoring 28. That's basically how it can go here. Um, the strength of them were were offense. They were the number one team in the NFL, um, and they scored way more than anybody else in the NFL, almost 40% more than the average team was expected. They had no weaknesses across the board. If you want to go individual stars, they had Leroy Butler having one of the best seasons ever. They had Reggie White, Brett Favre having probably his uh, most prolific season as a Packer and great, great defense. And they blew out what they beat eight teams by 25 points. I think this one's an easy one to start with. Yeah. And I'm, I'm actually a little surprised they're not higher considering, you know, you're first in in offense and defense for scoring. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you you look at the, all the teams that have won Super Bowls. I guess there's been a lot of good ones. It seems like 15 is a little high or I mean, I guess I I don't know how you'd say a little low. Mm -hmm. Um, You'd think just by looking at it, they might be a little bit higher just looking at that team, but you know, like I said, there's a lot of good teams, so it's uh, they're definitely one of the greatest. I thought that that one might crack top ten, though. Well, one of the reasons that they are this low is because I gave huge bonuses for winning a championship. Where, for for reference sake, the 16th team, the one team out, is the Minnesota Vikings in 1975, who did not win a Super Bowl, but they were sure. super prolific in everything, and they're only 0.1 percent behind the Packers. If you won a Super Bowl, I gave you a full percentage point bonus. So you're getting rewarded as a championship. But the reason I did this is because there are so many really good teams that had 2011-type Packers postseasons, and people forgot about them forever. And so I wanted to see who's really good. I don't want to know about the the bad teams that got hot at the end of the year. I want to know the teams that were kicking the crap out of people all year and maybe had a stumble in the playoffs. So they're not all going to be champions ahead of the Packers. Okay. All right, number 14 is the 1971 Super Bowl champion Dallas Cowboys. And so this is the first championship that they won with Roger Staubach. The reason this team is so high is because of their offense. They were super effective passing and rushing the ball. They scored the most points. They had the most yards. And that's the reason why you I, I compared them the way I did. They only scored 406 points, which isn't that much. But in... 1971, 406 points is over 50% more yeah, than the incredible. average team. Yeah, and really good defense, too. Is is that the only one of the 70s Cowboys teams at this point going forward? It is not. Oh, okay. I won't get into them too much then, but obviously, I mean, just look at their roster, just loaded with Hall of Famers and great players. So, it, mm-hmm. um, you know, I've seen more maybe of their video than a lot of the older teams because, you know, of all the Super Bowls they played in and playing mm-hmm. the Packers in the Ice Bowl. So, um, yeah, obviously a really great team. And one special outlier for this team is that they hold the record for the fewest points allowed in the Super Bowl when they beat the Dolphins, who would go on to win the next two Super Bowls, 24-3, to which yeah. that's got to be worth something. 
Next, number 13 are the 1975 Pittsburgh Steelers. This is the highest-ranked Steeler team on the list. Uh, the reason that they are ahead of the 78 and 79 Steelers, which are the next teams um, behind them on this scale, is their defense. Uh, their defense was much more historically strong in 1975 yeah. than it was the other years. Obviously, they were both really good. But their offense, which they get a lot of credit for in the late 70s for how much their offense got better, and they did, but so did the rest of the league. So when you put it in this type of scenario, while their explosion looked bigger, it actually wasn't in the grand scheme of things. Whereas in 1975, their offense was still really good, but their defense was destroying people uh, where they weren't quite as dominant in the late 70s. Yeah. Yeah, and again, I'm kind of a little surprised to see them this this low on the list too. I was actually kind of thinking in in my car today, coming back here, thinking about this show and trying to compare like sort of the all decade teams. And you usually put the Steelers '70s, you know, it just as a group, their '70s teams up, you know, top five kind of. You think of them like a top five dynasty, top five team of all time. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, but they're one of those teams I think too that maybe wasn't quite as um, dominant in the regular season because mm-hmm. there was a lot of tough competitors in the AFC back then too. I mean, they're fighting with the Raiders all the time. Um, so I guess that does make sense, you know, with the way that you scored it. I think that that's probably pretty accurate. And they absolutely still can be, you know, one of the greatest teams of all time. I mean, I'm just looking real quick here, and in the top 50 is also the 79 Steelers and the 78 Steelers. So sure. they're certainly a dynasty. I think that's definitely fair. Yeah, I guess when you put all the seasons together, that is a little different than comparing one focused season. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and then that's what we're trying to do because – um, as we'll see later in the list, we're we're not going to punish teams that were dominant one year and then we're never able to do that again. Yep. Uh, it's it's a one year vacuum is what we're looking at. So number, what are we up to? Twelve are the 1973 Miami Dolphins, which is the most forgotten about team in history because of what they did the year before. The reason that they're this high is that their defense was actually even their their offense was uh really good but their defense was even better than they were in 1972 uh from a points allowed standpoint they gave up 150 points in 14 games which is 42 percent better than what the rest of the nfl was doing that's awesome yeah Yeah, and pretty much the same roster from the year before how many regular season games did that one lose uh just two just two yeah so yeah, and then they uh, was that the Redskins Super Bowl win? Or no. that was that that was the perfect season was the was the Skins. Right? Yep, they beat the Minnesota Vikings that year. Vikings, um, gotcha. I think that's the game when the Bob Greasy was six for seven passing. Nice. <laughs> so, as much as I complain about the extra point, I think the 1978 rule changes were for the better because I, I mean some of those early 70s games are quite brutal to get through. <laughs> yeah, I, now that I think of it, I you know I know I've seen highlights of that Vikings Dolphins game, but that kind of seems like a more forgotten. Super Bowl, and that's probably why the team has kind of forgotten a little bit. Yeah, you got to have that defining moment for people to remember you, but also they were much better at passing the football than the 1977 team, so that's why they're on here. Sure. All right, number 11, and this is going to be the first in several kind of shockers, but if you actually saw this team, it shouldn't be that much of a shock. Number 11 is the 1998 Minnesota Vikings. I knew you were going to say that as soon as you led up to that, yeah. They scored, uh, I want to make sure I get the number right here. Um, of course, you know, they're the, they're the highest scoring team of all time at the time. They scored 63% more points than the average team from 1998, and they threw 87% more touchdown passes. <laughs> That's insanity. Every single one of their offensive numbers is over 25% better than the rest of the league. 
Yeah, that that team was insane. It hurts to see ahead of the '96 Packers, and that would have been actually a really exciting yeah. matchup if we could have been able to see that. The, the '98 Packers were obviously not even close to '96 yeah. anymore. But I don't know. I I thought about that for years. You know how good of a game that would be, but the '90 the '96 Packers would have been better equipped to score on the '98 Vikings. But I don't know if. I don't think even Craig Newsom pre-injury is going to cover Randy Moss or Doug Evans. Yeah, and that's, that's what put them over the top, obviously. Robert Smith was really good, but Randy Moss was unstoppable that year. And that was one of the first years, and I maybe think of maybe the early one of the early 2000 Buccaneers teams that were, their defense was just insane, where you just kind of thought the Packers didn't have a chance to win that game, mm-hmm. and you had to play them twice. So I, I remember that Vikings team being probably one of the more dominant teams I've ever seen. I, I think about them. I think about, you know, the Patriots team, which also didn't win a Super Bowl but went undefeated. Mm-hmm. Just two teams that were so much more dominant than everybody else in the regular season. Mm-hmm. And uh, that team was incredible and lost to a pretty mediocre Atlanta Falcons team, which is shocking. Yeah. Uh, but definitely one of the best teams I've ever seen. Yeah, the Atlanta Falcons of 1998 are not uh, anywhere to be found in the top 50 that I see here. Yeah, <laughs> Even though they went 14-2, and two, which... I think it the 30-team NFL was weird, so they had a lot of strange uh, uh, divisions that had no talent, so teams could get 14-2 and two and 13-3 and three just beating the scrubs in their own division. Yeah, the Saints and the, yeah teams like that. Yeah, the, the thing I always remember about the Vikings, uh, they destroyed the Packers at Lambeau, ended their three-year winning streak there, so that's obviously a big one. But I remember right before Christmas on Sunday Night Football, it felt like, you know, you're, you're getting, you're, what are we, 11 at the time? So you're always like, well, they haven't played anybody, and, you know, someday they'll play somebody good, and they'll, they'll beat them up. And I remember they played Jacksonville, and, you know, people remember the late 90s. Jacksonville was a really good Very team. Good, yeah. And they went to the Metrodome, and the the Vikings beat them like they were a 1AA team. It was like 50-10 to 10 or something. <laughs> and I'm just like, this team, it, it, it came to the point where as much as we hated Denver, because of what had happened the year before, that was the game where I'm like, only the Broncos can save us now. I'm like, I guess I have to concede that hopefully Denver can beat them because this team is going to be the best of all time and they're going to wipe away any other great team um, that played in the 90s and nobody's going to remember the 96 Packers. They're going to talk about the Vikings being the 85 Bears of the 90s. Yeah. So good thing it never happened. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and really, I mean, that's probably why that game is probably what in both of our top 10, you know, football moments ever, just because you didn't think that the Vikings had any chance of losing that game. Mm-hmm. So it was really as the game went on against the Falcons where you start paying more and more attention, you're like, oh my gosh, there's no way, but they're, st- they're just hanging in there mm-hmm. and to somehow pull that out just by some fluke missed field goals and things. It's unreal that that happened. I can't believe it to this day that that Falcons team won. Yeah, that, that it felt like the biggest upset ever. I mean, it felt like... I mean, Boise State and Oklahoma didn't feel like a bigger upset than Atlanta beating the Vikings. Yeah, that was unreal. Yeah. All right, the next team is going to be even a bigger shocker, and it's going to be the biggest head-scratcher, I think. Well, second biggest head-scratcher on this list. And at number nine, we have the 1987 San Francisco 49ers. Okay. Um, They lost their first playoff game in the Anthony Carter game, where they were able to beat him in the mud. But they went 13-2. and the big thing with the 49ers is they might have had, honestly, might have had the best offense in NFL history. And it's it's weird because that season was the year that they had only 12 games with the starters and 15 games overall because of the midseason player strike. Yeah. But they were number one in points scored, number one in yards, fewest yards allowed, third in points allowed. 
Their passing game was insane. In 11 starts, this is in 1987, mind you. In 11 starts, Joe Montana had 31 touchdown passes. Jerry Rice, in 12 games, had 22 touchdown catches. The 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 uh, uh, the record that Randy Moss broke in 2007 in 16 games, scoring in the fourth quarter of the 16th game, was to break the record Jerry Rice set in 12 games. It's insane. Roger Craig had 1,300 yards in 13 games. It it was just insanity. I had no idea this team was this good, and that's why I'm glad that I did this list like this. And it really makes me want to watch that 1987 playoff game against the Vikings. I, I don't have that one yet, but I would love to see it because the Vikings are buried way deep on this list in like the 500s, and they beat the, the 49ers by two touchdowns. And I want to know how the heck that happened because statistically, this 49ers team in 1987 should have gone down as one of the best teams of all time. Sure. Yeah, it's it's hard to put a team that lost right away in the playoffs as a top 10 team of all time, but it's interesting where the statistics like that wind you up and just how it, you know, it kind of summarizes football overall how you know just any week anything can happen and you match up with a team that that fits really well against what you do and a a team that you might not think is that good like a falcons or a vikings team can just take out one of the greatest teams of all time Mm -hmm. and and it kind of that that's what you hang your hat on for the the playoffs you know it's a one and done scenario so i am not going to insist that the next nfl top 10 best teams ever includes the 87 49ers (laughs) yeah but that's the reason why I did this list, because I wanted to discover some great, great teams that maybe just don't get their just due. I don't think the 87 49ers belong as the 10th best team of all time, but it's telling that statistically they probably were. Number nine is the 1977 Dallas Cowboys. So that was the team we were referring to earlier. Um, I think even if you're not a statistical obsessor like I am, the 77 team is an upgrade over the 1971 team. Um for clarity, the 77 team was the other Roger Staubach championship team. They also had Tony Dorsett on that team, which sure. I, is, of course, a big, um, uh, an, an extra weapon that they can use. They were number one in yards, uh, number one in fewest yards allowed, second in points, uh, eighth in defense. But they scored 345 points, and that was second in the NFL. And so 1977 is a different animal. It's basically the dark ages of offense. 345 points, I don't even know, would be in the top half of the NFL nowadays. Yeah, probably not. Back then, it was 43% more than any other team in the league. Oh, that's insane. Yeah, that was, I mean, that was the run-heavy period, right? So yep. just a, a lot of ground and pound and some really, really good defenses. Yeah, and so that's... Um, that's kind of why they were a better team because, you know, Roger Staubach had 18 touchdown passes, which was 25% more than the rest of the league. So, so that is, uh, why that happened. But I think it's just interesting. And I'm comfortable with this pick because they absolutely dominated in the playoffs. They only gave up 23 points in the whole playoffs and they scored over 23 each time in a era where 24 points was 40 points. So I'm comfortable with this one. I haven't been sharing the percentages, but they're all really close. So all these teams are pretty much interchangeable, but this is more interesting the way we're talking about it anyways. Yeah. I don't want to drown people too much in stats. Number eight. This one will be much more familiar. The 1985 Chicago Bears are at number eight. Uh, everybody knows about them. They had the absolutely suffocating defense. But from a historical standpoint, it was very impressive, but it wasn't quite as dominating as it might have appeared. They allowed 42% less points than the average team of that uh, 
1985. They also uh, forced 41% more turnovers, which is higher than anybody else in the top 15. And their offense was very good, but they had a pretty poor passing game, actually in negative numbers, both in passing touchdowns and passing yards. So that hurt him a bit there. Sure. Yeah, and I don't think that's a surprise if you're, you know, weighing offense and defense equally. Their offense was not amongst most of the rest of the Super Bowl winners that have done it with offense. So it's defense was probably the greatest of all time, but the offense was good, not great. Yeah, and it, it, they also got a little bit lucky. Uh, they're clearly the best team in 1985, but it, it's almost how we talk about the 2000 Packer, or 2010 Packers, where they had a really good defense, but they were very susceptible against elite-level quarterbacks, and they got lucky that they didn't have to face any of the super-elite, accurate, fearless pocket quarterbacks. On the path, yeah. Yeah, on the path to the Super Bowl. They, they got Roethlisberger, which was basically the best one, and he's never been a pinpoint-accurate guy. The 85 Bears played Phil Simms, Dieter Brock, and Tony Eason on their way to the Super Bowl. Had they played Marino or Montana, then things might have changed a little bit. Yeah, for sure. All right, the next one is the one that caused me weeks of readjusting numbers to try to get them out of the top ten. <laughs> and as I tried, everything, they seemed to go higher up on the list as I adjusted how I weighed different metrics and whatnot. But we'll stick with it because I decided to give up. At number seven are the 1973 Los Angeles Rams. <laughs> I was going to guess if it was a Rams team from there. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> so you were really going to guess the Rams? Yeah, I don't know why that was sticking in my head, but I just was trying to think about another team that might be kind of forgettable that might find their way into the top. Yeah, so this team, to give you some reference, they were 12-2, and two, so had the best record. Uh, in the NFC, they had to play at the Dallas Cowboys in the at the 10 and 4 Dallas Cowboys in the first round of the playoffs because in 1973 they still ran the rotational playoff home field advantage. So had this happened two years later, they would have had home field throughout the playoffs. As it stood in 1973, the NFC West had the lowest tier on that rotational system, so they had to go play at Dallas in the first round of the playoffs and ended up getting beat 27 to 16. So kind of a victim of a really Really stupid system. Like, I don't understand why that system ever existed in the first place. But this team was number one in points scored, number one in yards, fewest yards allowed, fourth in points allowed. They had the best rushing defense in the league by far, had a really, really good rushing attack, uh, led by Lawrence McCutcheon, who had um, 1,100 yards. See, nobody even knows who these guys are. Lawrence McCutcheon, who the heck is that? So he was there, but the Rams had 40, they they scored 388 points. That's 42% more than the average team from 1973, and that is only 27.7 points a game. So that's part of the reason. They have... 50% 50% more passing touchdowns, they have a 40% better passer rating, they had 44% more rushing yards, 44% uh, rushing touchdowns, and their defense allowed fewer yards than the rest of the league by a clip of about 30% on each metric. John Hadel was their quarterback, he had 2,000 yards passing, 22 touchdowns, 11 interceptions, 88 passer rating, which was enough to make him the first team all-pro quarterback almost unanimously. And so it's just a different world. It wouldn't look like the best team of all time if you watched them, but they were so much better than everybody else in 1973, and them against the Dolphins would have been a heck of a matchup in the Super Bowl. Yeah, and what was the year that they made the Super Bowl and lost? 79. It was their worst team of the decade, basically. 
Okay, sure. So yeah, that's that's interesting. I, I thought it'd be a you know maybe the Super Bowl team are close to it, but that's almost a different, completely different roster at that point. Then yeah, it's it, yeah the the roster is quite a bit different. But I'm tr- I'm trying to think of an, a um a team that would work there. It, the roster turnover is quite a bit different, but it's similar to the Packers now with McCarthy's teams, whereas there are probably three or four McCarthy teams that are better than the one that won the Super Bowl from a statistics standpoint, and that's kind of where it fits in here. Sure. So I don't have anything else to say about the 73 Rams, but if you just go look at their stats, it's, you know, this is an era where teams weren't scoring more than 20 points, and they have uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven games of 30 points or more in an era where people aren't scoring that oh, much. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah. They, they also have a, yeah, they have a bunch of shutouts and stuff. So just take a look at them. I don't think the Rams belong this high on the list, but this was weird for me to discover how good this team was and probably would have gone down as one of the greatest teams of all time had they been able to win this and would have validated the entire 70s Rams as one of the greatest forgotten eras for a football team they were good every single year won like seven straight division titles and nobody remembers because they never won a title yeah so this was their best team all right back to more familiar folks here at number six we have the 1989 san francisco 49ers um, if you're a fan of the Super Bowl or the history, um, this one's pretty easy. Those are the guys who destroyed the number one Denver Broncos defense to the tune of yep. 55 to nothing. The the strength of this team is defensively. Um, th- their passing was off the charts, 68% more passing touchdowns, 53% better offensive passer rating. But on defense, they had a tremendous rushing defense, and uh, they um, 23% better points allowed. So... Just a dominant overall defense. They didn't do anything like historically great, but just really good overall. And that was the last Montana championship, correct? Correct. Yep. 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 Obviously, a really good team. I mean, not that the AFC was as strong back then, but it's not like those Broncos Elway teams were bad. So to go ahead and throttle a team like that, yeah. I mean, even if that's the only game you've seen of them from that year, like me, you know how good that team was. And they were, and as bad as some people say the '89 Broncos were, they were head and shoulders better than anybody else in the AFC. Right. So for yeah. them to be able to do that was quite impressive. Number five was another team that I didn't expect to be this high, but I stuck with it. The 1999 Rams appearing this high, and this was a team that irritated me because of the strength of schedule aspect of it. The average team record-wise that the 99 Rams played was 5-11. and 11. Ouch. They played in a terrible division, and they matched up against the AFC Central, which was so bad that it had a 14-2 and champion with a 13-3 and wildcard team in it. So it... it they beat up on some bad teams, but you can't punish them for it. They had almost 100% more passing touchdowns than the rest of the NFL that year. Almost every statistic on offense, other than turnovers, they turned it over quite a bit. But um, points was 58% better. They had almost 40% better across the board on offense, and their defense actually held teams to 27% fewer points than the rest of the NFL. So, um, And they won the Super Bowl, so it's it's hard to argue against that. Yeah, it's it's hard to argue against that team. I think they're really good. Is that the highest rated Rams team? Not to spoil your, your list, but I thought we might see 01 on here. Uh, no, the 01 team is number 20. So okay. they're close to the top 10. So good callback, but no, this is the highest rated one. Yeah, that would have been my guess for a, a top 10 team, but obviously that 99 team was really good, and I, I think that's another one of those teams that not a lot of people paid attention to during the regular season much. 
uh, just because it's the Rams. And they've got a quarterback nobody knows, but they had Marshall Falcon. Obviously, looking back on it, was one of the best teams of all time and really, really talented. So I, I can't argue with that one. Can you imagine that happening today? Like the quarterback of the Arizona Rattlers coming in and leading the but the what the Bills or the Jags to the Super Bowl this year? Yeah. <laughs> insane. Yeah, that's what it was. I mean, the Rams had been terrible for yeah. a decade. They were the only in 19 going into the 99 season, they were the only team who had not made the playoffs in the 90s. Wow. And then, and then they, they won a Super Bowl. Yeah. Um <laughs> the reason that the 99 or the 2001 Rams are so low because they had the worst turnover percentage in the NFL. So they turned it over 50, 40% more often, 47% more often than the rest of the league. So they're sure. number 20 having the worst outlier stat of anybody in the top 50. So okay. they should, if they wouldn't have thrown so many darn interceptions, Kurt Warner had like, yeah, 22 picks that year. So. Oh, really? I guess you can't forget about that. Yeah. He also had 36 touchdown passes, so <laughs> I think that's probably why they're so high. Number four are the 1984 San Francisco 49ers. This list is insane with how good the 49ers were in the 80s and 90s. I didn't count it up, but I would be willing to bet that they have 10 teams in the top 50. Um, just looking at it real quick, number 21 is the 92 49ers that lost to Dallas at home in the NFC Championship game, but they were 14-2, and had the best offense in the league, had one of the best defenses in the league. Um, the 94 49ers that won the Super Bowl are number 18, just outside of this list. So they destroyed um, in that decade. But the 84 team was their finest. They didn't have anything that was really that much like a, of a historical uh, standing out, but just offensively about 40% better than everybody in everything, which in I found on here is elite, very elite. 33% better on defense in almost every category as well. Sure. Yep, and, and that is the the top of all the 80s ones you said, right? It is. So uh, as opposed to their first Super Bowl, Rice was on that team, correct? Uh, Rice was not on the 84 team. Not on 84 yet, okay. Yeah, but they had Roger Craig. Um, They still have – I can't remember who their receivers were. I think Freddie Solomon and Dwight Clark or something like sure. that. But um, they had Fred Dean, the, the Hall of Famer defensive end. He was on that team and was not on the later team. So okay. it balances that way. And for reference, I did not – incorporate strength of schedule or strength of victory at all into this but the 1984 for, uh, 1984 Miami Dolphins who the 49ers destroyed in the Super Bowl are number 17 wow so that's pretty impressive too yeah really impressive Super Bowl and that that might be the highest differential in the whole list probably huh yeah that that's by far the best on paper Super Bowl matchup in history it's not even close so Going to number three, here was the team I was alluding to before, and one of the reasons I like lists like this, because I think this is easily the most underrated team in the history of the NFL, certainly since the merger. When I say that, who, who am I talking about, Matt? Underrated. Um, I'm going to, oh man, now you're putting me on the spot here. <laughs> I, I'll guess the 94 Niners. No, uh, 91 Redskins. Okay. Oh, yeah, you love those Redskins teams. Well, I did have their tape from Osco Drug yeah. in the mid-'90s. I think I think they're definitely a team that was great, and I think a lot of times it's hard to swallow just because of the quarterback situation they always had. Mm -hmm. uh, their championship quarterbacks just never being that great. You just kind of don't think of them as an all-time elite team. Well, and these exact Redskins were 10-6 and six on a wild-card team in 1990 and 9-7 and seven in a wild-card team in 1992. So why did it lead to a 14 and 2 season where they pulverized everybody all year and then destroyed everybody in the playoffs? 
I'm not sure why that happened, but they were very elite. They were top five in almost every category on offense. Most points scored, second fewest allowed. And they just were, this is another team that wasn't too much of an outlier. 60% more points scored than the average team of 1991. And that's with 30 points a game. So that's pretty impressive. They also had 63% more passing touchdowns and 64% more rushing touchdowns. So this team had an unbelievable offense. And if you're not a big NFL historian, you wouldn't know any of these guys. It's Gary Clark. It's Ricky Sanders. Art Monk's a Hall of Famer, but Mark Rippon certainly isn't. Neither is Ernest Biner. Yep. Um, these are just the guys who, for some reason, were always solid. Uh, Rippon a little less solid, but he had some good years. And they just, for some reason, caught lightning in a bottle one year and were destroying everybody. Uh, well, and yeah. think about strength of schedule, too, with them. That's not even accounted for. They're in an NFC East um, you know, that had the Giants just coming off of a Super Bowl win. Mm-hmm. You had Randall Cunningham Eagles, and you had a Cowboys team that's starting to come on, too. So it's not like they weren't playing anybody. Yeah, Dallas was 11-5 and that year and won a playoff game. And the Eagles were 10-6 and and didn't make the playoffs because the NFC was so good that year. Um, they also played. They played the Bears, who uh, the Bears were undefeated uh, when they. Well, I don't remember if they were, but anyways, they played. They destroyed the Detroit Lions both in the regular season opener and the playoffs. And the Lions were 12 and four that year. They crushed the Bears in the regular season. They were 11 and five. They beat the Houston Oilers, who were 11 and five. 1991 is one of the weirdest years in the NFL, where for whatever reason, all the really normal dominant teams decide to be bad for one year, but. They played all the good teams of that year and beat them all pretty handily. Um, yeah, and apparently all the bad teams normally were really good because you just mentioned the Lions and the Oilers were some really good teams that they <laughs> yeah. beat too. It's a weird year. Yeah, that, that Lions team. The Lions beat, the Eric Kramer Lions beat the Jimmy Johnson Dallas Cowboys with all of the guys from their dynasty in the playoffs 38-6. to it's, wow. it's the weirdest result in NFL history. <laughs> but let's move on. The top two teams. I think if you were following along by now, you could probably guess who these top two teams are. Who do you think's number two? Oh, I don't like when you put me in a spot <laughs> like this. Well, that's what makes it fun for me. Well, let's see here. We've gotten through uh, the 70s Cowboys and Steelers teams. We've gotten through the uh, the 80s Niners teams. Uh, we've gotten through most of the, the dominant 90s teams. So I'm thinking we still potentially have a Patriots team from recently, mm-hmm. probably the 16-0 and team. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'll guess them as my... One of my my number two, just because I'm sure they're in the top two. You are correct. They are number two, and the reason that they aren't percentage points ahead of the Miami Dolphins is because they didn't win a championship. Sure. They're point one nine percent behind the '72 Dolphins. Not to oh, spoil yeah, number one. <laughs> but <laughs> that's pretty obvious. Okay. Yeah. So the '72 Dolphins are number one. Um, I'll just talk about both of these since I already spoiled it. Anyways, I don't think. Maybe there was some surprise, but the the 72 Dolphins, again, they just were solid across the board, almost 30% better than everybody in everything. And they got the same bonus as everybody else for playoff wins and, and stuff like that. So I I was actually kind of – I feel a little bit better about the, the, the Dolphins and, uh, you know, them being heralded as maybe the greatest team ever, having been undefeated. They were good. They were really good. The New England Patriots had – 70% more points scored in 2007 than the rest of the NFL. That's insanity. Nobody else is even close in the modern era. They had 122% more passing touchdowns than the rest of the NFL. The only team better in the modern era is the 1984 Dolphins when uh, 
uh, Marino through 48 back in the, the mid-80s. They were unbelievable statistically, offensively, and defensively they weren't, but they were still really good. This team is almost completely carried by their offense, and I mean, I don't feel that bad for them because the implications of cheating, and they're all going to go down in history as really good anyways, but the 2007 Patriots, if it's not for the flukiest drive and maybe the history of championship football, are hands down the best team in history. Yeah, and I, I just saw that before the, the, we started the podcast here. They had it on uh, ESPN, that Super Bowl. I watched the end, and I watched the Plexico Burst touchdown. Um, yeah, I mean, the best team that I've ever seen, and I say that, you know, with the 96 Packers, you know, in my heart, and I always want to say they're the best I've seen, but this Patriots team was the best I've seen. Just every single week, you come and, and watch the game and just hope they lose, and I think they were they were one of the biggest villains in the history of the NFL, too. For sure. But you just knew it wasn't going to happen. And, you know, they played some good teams, but it just seemed like every week, even if that team was good, they were nowhere near as good as this Patriots team was. Mm-hmm. They just made the rest of the NFL look, you know, much weaker just because of how good they were. So, yeah, the fact that they didn't beat that Giants team, which was a good team but not a historically great team, um, holds them back from being probably the, considered the greatest team of all time, but still the best team I've witnessed week in and week out. Yeah, and I, I echo everything you said there. Um, Eli Manning... Uh, Brady's got a good um, legacy anyways, but Eli basically destroyed it. Yeah, <laughs> he really did. I mean, he'd be the greatest quarterback of all time right now if it wasn't for Eli Manning. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to find. It's going to take a while because I have to um, do like a control find, but I'm trying to see where on this list the 07 Giants are. And um, gosh, I'm going – I might have missed him already, but Vikings – Cardinals, there's no way that they're worse than the Cardinals. Yeah, they're, they they got to be somewhere in here. But um, maybe I'll find that and I'll post that somewhere. I'll, I'll share that next week. But um, some other just really kind of fun things. So we talked about the best teams. We won't go into depth about the worst teams, but it's kind of um, validating for this list for me. The worst team of the 1,318 teams that have played since the merger is easily... The 1976 Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Sure, winless, yep. Uh, 1973 Oilers are the next lowest on there. I don't know much about them. Third worst is the 2008 Detroit Lions. So I think that... Oh, yeah, I guess. <laughs> that at least makes me feel better about this list. Yeah, it worked out well with the stats. The worst post-merger Packer team is the 1986 4-12 Packers, who uh, got bullied pretty badly. But believe it or not, 4-12 is actually the worst the Packers have been uh, since... Um, the the merger, so that's not so bad. The top five Packer teams in recent years are 1996, then there's quite a gap, and then next is 2011, believe it or not, just because, again, that's that the, sense. Yeah. Yeah, the outlier of how dominant they were on offense. Then 1997, then 2009, then 2007, then last year, then 2001, and then just behind 2001 is the 2007 champ- or 2010 championship that, team. Wow, that's kind of crazy. Yeah, but I think you could see that. I mean, statistically, they weren't all that great on offense, and those other teams I mentioned um, were very, very good on offense. So. Yeah, I mean, this is really regular season heavy, and they had a lot of blunders that regular season and weren't overly dominant. They didn't really seem to start catching fire until the end of the year. So, mm-hmm. I mean, they, you lost some bad games to the Dolphins and the Redskins and the best teams of all time generally don't do that. Yeah, yeah, so... I think that's fair. All right, so have I scrambled your brains? Was this a worthwhile discussion? Yeah, I think it was very interesting, and I, I think it was pretty easy to follow. I, 
you know, it's it's hard to, to swallow a couple of the teams that were in there, but I, I mean, it's that's what makes what you did different than what everybody's regurgitated over and over again, you know, on NFL Network and what have you. So I think it was real interesting. Well, I appreciate that, and that, that's part of the reason for my obsession with this stuff, and that's one of the only reasons we, you know, this this podcast exists is because we try to give our own unique perspective. I was reading a preview of the Packer game against Pittsburgh, and it was two prominent bloggers that were talking to each other, and one was from Pittsburgh. He was interviewing the one who covers the Packers, and he's like, well, what sets apart the Packers' offense from the Steelers' offense, both of which are expected to be really good this year? And the Packers' blogger says, Man, it's number 12. You know, the way he, he, he throws it, he just sees the field differently, and, uh, you know, he's the X factor for the Packers. I'm like, thank you per, for providing nothing interesting or unique right. to the conversation. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I didn't know that. Yeah, I, I thought, Aaron, you know, Aaron's, Aaron's a difference maker, you know. Um, so, that, we're always trying to do a little off the wall things. It's probably hard to follow in an audio format, but maybe someday I'll, uh, share my, uh, secrets with everybody and they can dig around on these spreadsheets their own. All right, Matt, uh, any expectations for tomorrow other than it being a rare Sunday afternoon preseason game? No, it'll be fun. I'm gonna, I think it's getting, gonna feel kind of fally outside. I'm gonna grill up some brats and have some Oktoberfest most likely, Ooh. so it's gonna be a good kind of feeling like football Sunday almost. Sounds perfect. Yeah, uh, we'll probably be doing the same, and, uh, all I hope for is that nobody gets hurt. That's right. <laughs> All right, so for Matt and Altoona, I am Eric and Appleton. Thank you for joining us today on Green Eagle Forever, and uh, we'll uh, talk to you down the road. Thank you. Take care, everyone. I can't even end the podcast well anymore. Take care, everyone.